Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, podcast, where we talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Today I'm joined with uh, author David Finkel, author and business coach David Finkel, and multiple author, because I've got two of your books right here, and I know that you've written many others. Um, just quickly, David, for the people who may not know you in the audience, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background about who you are and, and how you got into the field of working with entrepreneurs. Absolutely. First, it's a pleasure to be here, David. I started off about 25 years ago, a failed uh, athlete. I was training to play in the Olympics. I got hurt before the Atlanta Games in 1995. I had to retire and I started my second business. The first one failed, lost my life savings of $3,200 I had saved. Um, the second business hit it big. And over the course of eight years, we scaled it to a company that was earning about three, three and a half million dollars a year profit. Mm -hmm. um, and then I sold it. And um, I built the next company. That first business was working with about, about 1,000 to 1,500 or so coaching clients a year before I sold the company. And I, I built my next business around that. So I've owned businesses, everything as diverse as professional service firms to um, uh, uh, real estate companies to um, consumer businesses. But most of what I've done in the last probably 15 years have been about how do I help a business owner you know, build a business versus owning a job, whether they're building it to sell it one day or they're looking to scale it. That, that's been my bread and butter. How do you actually do that? Uh, it's it's um, fantastic because the, the, the people in my audience are business owners or they want to be a business owner. And for a lot of them, that is a, is a big sort of warning is they don't want to buy something that's just going to be a job uh, there are people who do that, and there are reasons why some people do, are motivated to make that kind of decision. Um, but what was interesting when I started to read Freedom Formula, uh, which is your latest book that just came out before Christmas, um, is that you really break down, I guess, sort of the how do we best work on ourselves as the owner of a business, and then how do we best help the people that are working with us. You've kind of got the book divided into two different uh, sections. And in the first section, you talk a lot about the value economy. And I love the discussion that you, that you had about that. Why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of, of what you were thinking and, and what sort of uh, takeaways are in the book about thinking of value versus thinking about working hard? This yeah. is one of, my favorite, one of my favorite things. You know, it's interesting. It, I, I think every business person, whether they, they bought a business or they built it themselves from scratch, they hit a point where they find themselves working awful hard. And what happens is we've convinced ourselves that the way to grow or scale a company is we work harder and longer. We call this the time and effort economy. And the truth of the matter is the biggest business breakthroughs don't come from longer hours. Longer hours have a degrading extra value. I can put in 20 extra hours, but I might only get 20 units of value. But if I can not focus on time and effort, hours, sweat, blood, and toil, and instead focus on the value economy, the things that I do that create the most value, I might be able to, in four or five or six hours throughout my week, do something that's so valuable that it's worth more than the other 50 hours I worked combined. And so people in the time and effort economy say things like, you know, if I don't keep checking my inbox and, and keeping on top of my email or my apps, uh, I might miss something important. But the value economy is a business person who says, hey, if I am just living in my inbox and, and tied to my phone, I won't create anything of value. And, and the difference, the discerning is I don't ask the question about how can I work longer or how can I do more? Instead, I ask, what really is the highest use of my time and how do I design the systems around that so that myself and then eventually my key staff and company 
put our very best attention and, and, and talent on those few things that actually make a big difference? And how do you operationalize working smarter? I mean, that's, that's the game. That's how someone can work a lot less and still generate a lot more economic value. Well, and, and you talk in the book about um, taking specific time when we have the most energy and devoting it towards those things that are going to actually produce the most value. And uh, many years ago, over 10 years ago, I took a, um, a productivity program. It was a, a program over a couple of weeks. And it was one of my biggest takeaways that I use today is that I don't create to-do lists. I rather, I shuffle blocks in my calendar and I create blocks saying this has to be done. The blocks might get moved, but the blocks have to be addressed. And what you talk about specifically is that we should be thinking about blocking out certain activities in certain times of the day. Yeah. And, and I'll call it my, my buffet strategy of time management. Like I, I love buffets and, and I, I, I mean, I can go to a buffet and the first thing I want to do is I want to go hit the dessert tray or the <laughs> Sunday machine. But I know if I do that, I'm going to have nothing but junk food. Most of us in our business lives fill our plate with junk food. The most important plate of food is the first thing we put on it. So what we look at it is if I can fill that plate with even just one hour or three hours in the course of that day with something that actually matters first, mm -hmm. then the other junk stuff I put in there doesn't hurt me so bad. At least I filled up and I've gotten the value from that nutritious piece. So we call it a focus day versus a push day. I pick one day a week, one day a week, let's say it's every Thursday. And I block off two to four hours, one chunk, one day a week. I start there and I make sure that during that chunk, I only do my most valuable activity or activities. It might only be one or two things, but if I know I can count on that every week for 45 or 50 weeks out of the year, it's amazing the result. And once I have that, my other push days where I'm just kind of doing things normally, if I can give myself even one hour of my best time blocked off. Most of us, what we do, David, is we, we, we have our time. It's in these small little slivers. You talked about your blocks that you move around. Mm -hmm. I cannot create my best value in five minutes or 15 minutes that is, is somehow shifted around the day. If I can just take that first plate of food on the buffet and have it be you know, nutritious, high-quality proteins and vegetables, anything else is, is gravy that I eat. So the first thing I do for my week is I make sure I have one focus day with a two, three, four-hour block. And then each of the other days, I just give myself a one-hour block. All I'm, all I'm carving out is five to ten hours in the course of an entire week, even just five hours done that way. Those five hours will probably give me more value in terms of actual accomplishment than the other 45 hours put together. Do you find that in the media that there's a certain amount of glamorization of the, of the busyness, sort of that startup culture kind of feel. Yeah. I, I certainly notice it where, it, you know, we'll bring a pool table into the office so that we can all stay till 10 o'clock at night. And there's nothing really getting done, is there? Exactly right. I had a business partner once that I ended up buying her interest out because we just weren't the right fit. And she was someone who would work all night, emails coming at three or four in the morning. Everyone felt the stress and pressure. When I finished buying her out, we scaled that company by about 12 fold over the next six years. We didn't do it by working nights and weekends. I don't want my staff working nights and weekends. I want them to have a life so they actually stay with me. And, and the reality is, I, I think that we'll talk in the book, The Freedom Formula, about these five chains that, that connect us to the time and effort economy. But one of them is this feeling of being needed. I think any person in a business, whether I bought it or built it from scratch, if we're not careful, 
this this sense that if I if I'm not there, I, I get so much of my identity from the business. Mm-hmm. It's a trap. And if I can let go and recognize the business is part of me, but it's certainly not all of me, it makes it much easier to have it keep in place. And the reality of it is it, more time, those extra hours, they're diminishing value anyway. So get out, go home, go be with your kids, go take a hike, go go sit in the hot tub, do something different because you're not creating value. All you're doing is just putting in hours and hours of, of low value mass work as opposed to doing high value things. I, I, I think it actually transcends the, all the different positions within a business. You know, my, my father-in-law owns a auto repair and tire shop and a certain time of year it's busy with the <clears throat> putting winter tires on cars and things like this. And, and on those, you know, for about six weeks, he runs his business on Saturdays, which he normally doesn't. And I said, why don't you just stay open later during the week? And he, he actually said to me, he said, I've learned a long time ago that if I try to keep any of my technicians here past five o'clock, the rate of work just starts to slow right down because they're all tired, distracted. People are, are trying to go through the motions of, of doing things and then mistakes are made. Exactly. He said, he said he eventually realized it was much smarter just to have five or six Saturdays during that busy time of year and ask people to come in for half day and they can get the extra customers through that way. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking yesterday with a client of mine. He, he recently just, he, he owns six different businesses. He just bought a six business recently. And uh, he was telling me about how he's feeling uh, really kind of out of sorts for some reason. And he wasn't getting a lot done. He felt unfocused. And one of the things I suggested to him, I said, look, here's what I'm going to guess. Are you finding yourself at your office working in these various businesses past the point where you're actually getting anything done? And he said, well, yeah, now that you mention it, I am. I said, great, here's your homework go home next time, go take a walk. He's a hunter. So go on the property that you own that, that he's got this hunting land and go care for the property, go cut down trees and or weeds and build your trails, do whatever you need to do, but get out of the office. You're not helping the business right? and you're hurting yourself. So help both you and your business by going away and then come back recharged. And this is often where our subconscious is given the space to actually create ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> for a lot of my listeners, you know, their plan, either they own a business today or their plan is to buy one one day. And in the second part of the book, what I enjoyed is that you talk about actually developing your team and you talk about how the owner's role is, is to be a coach for the people that are on the team. Um, and, and you talk specifically about the culture. And I think we've already touched a little bit about on that when you talk about how you don't want people here all the time. What are some of the things that we could be looking at when we're looking at a business that we might want to acquire that can give us some insights or some clues that there may be some advantages that we could have in sort of reformatting the culture of a business once we, once we get control of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I bought companies before and one of the things I'm always looking at of course is, you know, is the talent in that company, the key asset or is it in formalized systems or um, is it in a certain market brand that they have that gives me the value? But in many cases, I have clients who look at companies and it's, it's really one or two key team members with that. And so if I'm going to buy a business, I'm always cautious about is the team going to stay? But here's one thing I notice. A lot of people who build companies that don't really have any formal training in it, they end up building a company that has one or two key people that are actually poisonous to the business, but the business can't live without them. 
They haven't done any back, any, we call it building strategic depth. It's actually chapter four, the freedom formula, building so that any function of the business is done by cross-trained team, good at processes and systems in place, and a culture that says, this is just how we do it. But I'll give an example. Let's say there's somebody out there, we'll call this person Xavier. And Xavier is incredible at doing one function of the business. But if Xavier's poison, when I come in, one of the most important things I'm going to need to do is how do I excise that poison? And, and I see a lot of people buy companies and what happens is they go in there and their first course of business, they just perpetuate that. They, they accept the fact that this person, Xavier, in our example here, they don't have anyone else who can do what Xavier does. So one of the key cultural elements of any company I've ever built or purchased, I, I make this a non-negotiable in my companies, we will have strategic depth. And we'll say it this way, you know, how can you ever take a vacation, Xavier, if no one else can back up your function? So maybe one person can't do what he does, but could two or three do 60% of what he does in a backup so that if I did now have to have a heart to heart with Xavier, here's the adult conversation. And one of the things we talk about in the book, a friend of mine who built a $80 million retail business, he, he calls it can't do, won't do, don't know how. Whenever he looks at someone, mm -hmm. this is the distinction. And for any new manager of a business, you're stepping in, you just bought it. You might not have a lot of experience managing these types of people, but here's a great distinction. When you go talk with this Xavier, what you're looking for is, is it that he can't do what you're asking, he won't do what you're asking, or he doesn't know how? If he can't do it, he has no capability for it, that's a different answer. If it's he won't do it, I don't accept won't do in companies that I own. I have an adult conversation, and if it doesn't change, then they need to work somewhere else. The don't know how means I need to train, develop, coach this person to help them grab the skills and the experience set to be able to be capable of doing it. So those are some things that you might think about on the front end of a purchase that you might be able to radically improve or at the very least protect yourself as you go into that new business so that you're not held hostage by the, the Xavier's of the world. And if someone's an Xavier listening, I apologize. <laughs> well, the, the H word is exactly what I was thinking of as you were going through this. And I've, I've seen it myself. Um, in other cases, and I've, I've seen circumstances where people were afraid of that and they didn't do acquisitions. One case that comes to mind was a, a, a small business. It was a, a French bakery and the seller was the baker. And everyone who came to look at that business realized, hey, wait a minute, if I buy this business, I don't have that skill. And so if I hire someone that has that skill, I'll be beholden to this person. I'll have to do everything I can to make them happy because if that person were ever to leave, then I won't be able to, to produce the product, right? And, and it's not like breaking cookies, you know, the, the, the certain artisan skills, these craft skills uh, take a long time for someone to learn. And, and it's often, um, you know, an Achilles heel to a business, as you describe, especially yeah. if it's too small to, where they have trouble developing that strategic depth. Um, the, the, the discussion, the won't do, can't do, um, I read that in the book and I thought it was really insightful because at the end of the day, employees are part of a team where they are selling their time and skills to the business. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who come from a workplace, maybe who haven't had leadership experience, try to be everyone's friend and, and make things work the way you might at a dinner party, trying to make sure everybody gets along and I find there's really something that can be messed up if we don't keep in mind that there is a structure to this thing. It's not a dinner party. There, there is a boss. And there's a reason for that. 
Yeah, and, and even building on that, I, I think sometimes as a, as a new leader in a business, um, a distinction that's been very helpful for my clients, and it's certainly helped me, has been this distinction what I'll call, am I coaching this person for results or am I coaching this person for development? So I, I wanna be really clean on it. So if I'm working with Susan, and Susan is a really, really um, important player, she's got a future with us, She's got a lot of capability, desire to grow professionally. I don't want to just tell her what to do. I want to grow her capability. So I coach her for development. I ask questions. I don't tell her what to do all the time. I'll often have mm -hmm. conversations of, what do you think we should do here? Why do you think that? Have you considered this? But there are other team members that are just what I call a role player. They're not really hungry to grow. I can't ascribe ambition to grow. A lot of people don't have it. But they still produce an important function. That type of person I manage by coaching for a result. I, I'm much more directive with them. Carl, here's what I want you to do. Here's what success looks like. Here's how I want you to close the loop to let me know it's happened. Does that make sense? Wonderful, go have it. When I'm coaching for development, I don't wanna be directive. I wanna ask questions and help them have a fuller experience so they grow, they grow their capability. But I don't wanna be afraid or think I have to coach everyone that way because that takes two, three, four times as much time mm. I might find that if I've got a staff of seven people in this business I bought or 70 people, depending how big the company is, I might find that only five to 20% I will ever coach for development. And the others, I'm just there to help them get the result, hold them accountable. But by just asking that question, what it does is it helps me get to the right frame. Which path should I go down with somebody? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Oftentimes when I talk about the differences between large businesses and small businesses, I'll say that in small businesses, they stay small because the owners delegate tasks. Whereas in the bigger businesses, owners delegate responsibility, which, which means now that somebody has to become creative and own something and, and, and figure out how to, and it, it basically frees up bandwidth in the owner's mind. That's right. They don't have to then be taking care of that. Somebody else is, and you check in from time to time just to make sure it is being taken care of and someone's being responsible. But the owner doesn't have to have their finger on everything all the time. It's really trying to grow. That's right. Not only do they not have to, they, they can't if they want to grow. You, you brought up something really important. So if, if they're in the freedom form, that's the accelerator number three, grow your leaders. But here's the difference. Like you said, if I'm delegating tasks, I'm basically saying get X or Y done. Instead, what I want to make sure I grow some of these people to own they have to own functional areas of responsibility. If I'm always handing out the task, like there's a, a gentleman I, I have in my network. He's a really nice man. He does uh, a lot of commercial real estate, apartment complexes and office buildings. He has a team of about 12 to 14, these virtual assistants, and he loves it. He can pay them you know, five, $10 an hour. They do all kinds of stuff. And I, I, I teased him about this. I said, well, hang on a second. Who's the one that has to give them all the task assignments? He does. Who's the one that has to manage to make sure all those task assignments are done? He does. Who's the gap catcher when something doesn't cleanly fall into a category who has to catch it and hand it to somebody else? He does. And I laughed. I said, well, no wonder you work so hard. You don't have anyone besides yourself who has any functional areas that they own in the business. And, and that's a leader versus you just being a task manager. I've got to grow other leaders because I don't have the attention, the bandwidth, to scale the company otherwise. And you're so right about that, David. I totally agree. Yeah. So when, when you set off to write the Freedom Formula, what, who was your ideal reader? Who were you, were you thinking about when you wrote this book? 
Yeah, so this would be my 12th book. And so in all the other books, I'd written it pretty much just for the owner of the business. But I have a lot of clients now who started off with, you know, they either, they either bought a business or they built it from the scratch, but they started off with a few employees and now they might be at 50 employees or a couple hundred employees. And what they said to me is none of your books are good for the employees. And uh. so I said, oh, okay, well, that was a great challenge for me. And basically what they said was they've learned so much about how to work smarter for me, not just like what to do, but specifically how to do the what to do. So I set out on how do I write a book that operationalizes not just for the owner and not just for the, the, the CEO, but for any of the key people in a business. How do you in fact work smarter in the business and how do you get your team, whether that's your department in finance or your sales team to also work smarter? And that, that was the, the precursor for the book. Awesome. Well, it was good to meet you today, David. I, I, I've enjoyed this book that uh, you were good enough to send me. And then I had another book of yours called Scale, which was, uh, it was the last one, was it before this it one? It was, it yeah. was. Which, which I enjoyed as well. And um, if everyone's interested, where's the best place that they can get a copy of the Freedom Formula? Yeah, the easiest place, uh, any local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, any of those, but also they can go to freedomtoolkit.com. And at freedomtoolkit.com, not only will they get the book, but they can also register their book for a free value add. It has uh, several dozen uh, videos and PDF tools that we put together that specifically tie into the parts of the book. I've learned I can't put too much in a book in terms of if it's more than about 300 pages, and this one's, I think, about 260, people won't read it. So the extra pieces that I wanted them to have, we did it as video and PDF tools that are, that are there that they can unlock by simply getting a copy of the book. Well, you know, it, uh, what, what I think is really great about it is that when I am doing my talks and discussions and consulting with clients and everything, it's very heavy on numbers. Um, it's, it's a finance conversation often, and it's, it's all about what's been happening and what could happen in the business and what the numbers look like. But it, 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 all of that stuff is a function of the people that are working. And so the, the leadership aspect is something that is critical for people to develop, especially if they're coming from a background where they haven't had any kind of leadership of teams and things like this. And so that's why I thought it was a great conversation for us to have today. Well, I appreciate it. And I wish any, any of your listeners a very big success in the purchase and scaling and eventually the exit from the company that they're building. Awesome. Thank you, David. Have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. And don't forget everyone that um, if you're thinking about buying a business and you're not sure what to do, head on over to businessbuyeradvantage.com where you can sign up for my online course or join my group coaching program, Business Buyer Adventure, where we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Cheers.